you to stand as we hear these precious words of our Lord Jesus to us this morning from the Gospel of Luke. Our reading comes from Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up and put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, the priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him. And bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend I will repay when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do come here this morning. And what we need is you. Lord, some of us are keenly aware of your presence in our life and have much to give thanks and much to celebrate. But Lord, some of us are starving to know you and starving to know that you care. Lord, would you feed us with your words? Would you minister to us by your Holy Spirit? We are your people. And you are the God who dwells among us. Lord, we need you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would grab a seat. This week, I was keenly aware, I don't know if it was just what was going in my Twitter feed or what I happened to catch in the news, uh, but I just, I felt the, the division in our culture a lot this week. You know, we are so divided 
There's so much hostility right now in our society. And it's just spilling out into almost everything it feels like. I mean, you think about it, just there's lines everywhere you turn, you know, progressive, conservative, Democrat, Republican, you know, LGBTQ, straight, black, brown, white, rich, poor, urban, rural, just all over the place. There are divisions. And I was thinking about that this week because I, I just, we as the church are called to bear witness to a different way for the world. Because God's will is not for this division and hostility. It is for healing. It's for wholeness. It's for reconciliation. It's for peace. It's for life. It's for life. You know, last week we started this new series on the practice of hospitality. And, and, and I think this practice of Jesus is a huge part of what God wants to do in and through his church in a world that is full of hostility. As Paul said, to break down the wall of hostility between us, between us and between us and Jesus and the Lord. That is what the gospel brings, that good news. And this practice of hospitality, I think, can lead us uh, into a society that desperately needs that kind of healing. And so that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Again, we started this series last week. And if you missed last week, I encourage you to just go back. You can listen to that sermon online. But I just think this is such an urgent need in our cultural moment. And so we want to press into this um, together. And so with that in mind, this morning's sermon um, is called, uh, it's called The Art of Neighboring, the art of neighboring. Isn't that clever? Do y'all like that? The art of neighboring? Yeah, I totally stole that um, from this great book called The Art of Neighboring. Um, and uh, I just love it. I love the title. Um, and so that's what we're going to talk about this morning is this art of, uh, of neighboring. And I think there's no better place to look uh, than Luke 10. So if you want to open your Bible up with me to Luke chapter 10. Those verses we just read, 25 through 37. If you need a Bible, there's probably one in the seat back near you. Or if you want to feel free to get out your phone um, and open up a Bible online. Luke chapter 10, verse 25. And as you're turning there, just to give a, a little bit of a setup. Again, a lawyer comes to Jesus. Uh, this is a, a lawyer in Jesus' day was someone who was an expert in kind of the Jewish religious code, the law of God's people. And so he comes to Jesus and he asks him this question, how can I inherit eternal life? And Jesus answers with his own question. Well, what does the Bible say, basically? He says, what does it say and what does it mean? You tell me. And the lawyer quickly responds, basically, it's to love God and to love your neighbor. Quoting from Deuteronomy and Leviticus, he kind of puts that together and Jesus says, well done. That is indeed what it means to live a godly life and what, it, what is necessary to inherit the fullness of life that Jesus has on offer, that God has on offer. He says, that's right. Um, and, and that would be a great end to the story. But that's not where the story ends because it says this lawyer seeking to justify himself asks a follow-up question. And the follow-up question is, and who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? In other words, he wanted to know, how far do I have to take this second part 
Where is there a line we can draw and then I can kind of on this side of it, I can check the box and I don't have to worry. But to be right with God, what's what's the minimum I have to do? That's kind of the heart of his question. Right. And so Jesus, seeing that heart, he responds as Jesus is prone to do. He responds how? With a story. Don't you love Jesus? He just comes. Oh, let me tell you a story. Right? So Jesus tells them this story, and I want to look at this story together. Look at, me, look at with me at uh, verse 30. It says, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, and they left him half dead. Now, the road uh, to, to Jericho from Jerusalem is a treacherous road in Jesus' day. So it's about 20 miles in distance. It's about 2,500 in elevation feet and elevation change. It is a rugged, rough road. And in fact, in Jesus' day, it was nicknamed the Way of Blood because it was so prone and open to crime, just like we find in this story. In fact, uh, a lot of biblical scholars think this is actually a true story that circulated in Jesus' day. And he's picking it up to illustrate a point, but he puts a twist on it. And we're going to see that here in just a minute. Uh, But he goes on to tell this story. And what he says is, Now by chance a priest was going down, verse 31, going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to that place and saw, he passed by him on the other side. Now, priest and Levite, who are these people? And what's the significance of Jesus including that detail. Well, there's some important things that we need to understand. First, Jewish worship centers around the temple in Jerusalem. And at the temple, there are these kind of three classes, three groups of people who serve at the temple. There's the priesthood, which is kind of the top tier. Then there's the Levites. And then there's the Jewish lay people who serve. And you've got these, this three-tiered system. And the, the priests are kind of the upper echelon. They're kind of this elite group. In Jesus' day, most of them were wealthy. Uh, and then you've got Levites that's kind of one step down from that. And then you've got kind of the lower class, the Jewish layperson kind of poor people who also serve at the temple. And so that is who Jesus is describing. And that's important to realize because they're going from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, in Jesus' day, many of the priests and the Levites lived in Jericho. And what they would do is they would take two-week rotations where they would go up to Jerusalem, serve at the temple, and then they would go back. And when they went back, they received payment for having served at the temple. And they weren't paid in money. They were paid in uh, kind. They were paid with the tithes and offerings that were given at the temple, namely grains and meat is what they would receive. So they were received This gift of food, basically, to take back, not only for themselves, but for their entire family. And so that's the picture that Jesus said when he says they're going to Jericho. All that's kind of implied in this moment. And I raise that because what that means is, based on these Levitical codes, if you want to go back and read Leviticus 21 through 23, you can see this. There's these codes about how to remain ceremonially clean, pure. And the thing is, if you come in contact with blood or with a body, right, you are then unclean. And not only that, everything you have is unclean. So all the food that these guys were carrying, they would have had to throw away, to destroy. And then they would have had to return. If they had helped this guy, then they would have returned and become, uh, go through a whole process, become ceremonially pure at the temple. 
Now, I just tell you that not because that's an excuse not to help this man. It's no excuse. However, I think it's helpful just to understand that for these two men, there was much cost and much at risk to help this man on the side of the road. I can't afford to help this guy. I don't have time to show hospitality, to love the stranger. That's the point. And so then they move on. Now these two men, they fail to help this man on the side of the road. And Jesus listeners to this story because uh, we know what happens next. We, we kind of miss this. But Jesus' original audience, they would have been thinking in terms of these three classes of people, right? The priest, the Levite, and who's the third? The Jewish kind of layperson, right? They would have expected this story, the turn of the story to be, and then came along the poorest, lowest class person, the Jewish layperson, and they are the hero. The average Joe is the one who does what the priest and the Levite should have done. That's what they're expecting. But that's not what Jesus does with the story. This is what he says, verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. And it goes on to tell that he bound up his wounds. He cared for him. He took him to this inn. He, he gave money, two days worth of wages to care for this man. And that he planned to return and care for him at some later date. Now, the Samaritan stands in contrast to the priest and the Levite at great cost. And at great risk to himself, he cares for this stranger. And we're prone to hear this story and think, okay, that's the nice guy. He's the hero. We should do nice things for people in need. Great. Good lesson. Thank you, Jesus. But that's not ultimately the point of this story. It's part of it, but it's way more than that. Because here's what you need to know to appreciate what Jesus is really driving home with this account. Jews and Samaritans hated each other. Hated each other deeply. You see, the Samaritans uh, were descendants of, of Jews, the nation of Israel, who lived in the northern part of the kingdom. And when they had been conquered several hundred years earlier by the Assyrian Empire, they had been forced or invited to intermarry with Assyrians, and they did. And the descendants of those intermarriages became the Samaritans. To the south, uh, the Jews who lived in the south, they were later conquered by the Babylonians. And the Babylonians uh, tried to get them to do the same thing, and they resisted. They did not intermarry with the Babylonians. And so you can see over the next couple of hundred years this conflict emerging. And what happens is the Samaritans see the Jews as these kind of elitist, you know, um, uh, uh, basically racist. And the Jews see the Samaritans as these heretical kind of half-breeds in the north. And they hate each other. And conflict is constantly erupting between them. And so here is Jesus telling a story to his Jewish audience, a Jewish lawyer who is an expert in the law, and he tells them a story, and who is the hero? A Samaritan. A Samaritan. So why does Jesus do this? He makes the Samaritan the hero of the story. In other words, he makes their enemy the other, the hero. 
And so then he drives home his point. He says this, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to this man who fell among the robbers? Now remember, the original question is, who is my neighbor? And the lawyer answered, begrudgingly, I am sure, the one who showed him mercy. He can't even bring himself to say Samaritan, right? The one in the story who showed mercy. And Jesus says, you go and do likewise. Now, just two things I want to highlight here in light of the question, who is my neighbor? And the first is this, that Jesus, through this story, universalizes neighbor. He universalizes neighbor. Neighbor isn't just the person in the house next to you, uh, your fellow Jew in this uh, scenario. It's anyone and everyone. Jesus expands it all the way to your enemy is your neighbor. There's no exception, no way to opt out, no one beyond the domain of neighbor as a follower of Jesus. Who is my neighbor? Jesus says, everyone. Everyone is your neighbor. And loving your neighbor means seeking the good of the other, even at great risk and great cost to yourself. This is the picture of love in the New Testament. The picture of love in the New Testament is sacrificial love for the other. And the ultimate expression of that is Jesus, who gave himself for the sake of the other on the cross. It is at the heart of the gospel. That's the love that we see in this story. And it's for everyone, Jesus says. So Jesus universalizes, but he also particularizes neighbor. He particularizes neighbor. It's everyone, but it's also the person right in front of you. It's everyone, but it's also the person you pass on your morning commute, the person you see as you stand at the end of your driveway. It's, it's everyone, but it's also that person. Because I think a lot of times in our day, we read, love your neighbor, and we, we, we lean into the universalized understanding of it, right? We, we lean into that place where, oh, Jesus means everybody. And so what happens is it, it kind of becomes somebody out there. You know, we kind of we lean into the social justice expression of that, and that is part of it. But Jesus is making the point that this isn't just about people out there. It's the person right next to you. And so here's the thing. What if when Jesus says, love your neighbor, he actually means your neighbor, your actual literal neighbor? What if it's more than that, but it's certainly not less than that to Jesus? What if first century Jews needed to hear your neighbor isn't just the person next door, your fellow Jew, but also your enemy? What if what we need to hear in our day is that your neighbor isn't just the person out there, it's the person right here? I want you to uh, do a little experiment for me. I want you to imagine uh, your neighbors. Just picture your neighbors in your head, the people that live across the street from you, right next to you. Are you imagining them? Pick, picture a, a face. Get their name in your mind, your neighbor. What if Jesus' call to love your neighbor is for you to love that person? To love that person. Now, if you couldn't think of anybody <laughs> or you don't know their name, that's your homework for this week, okay? Find out your neighbor's name. 
great place to start. But when Jesus said, love your neighbor, what if he meant for you to go and love that person? What if, for example, your home, where you live, is not incidental to your life, but it's a part of what God has called you to do to love those people? Your home as a instrument in God's hands to love your neighbor. I think the challenge most of us actually have is that we think of our homes primarily as a place of retreat. It's a place to, to hide, to, to hunker down, to, to get away from the world. We shut the door, we close out the world, and we, 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 we binge watch, we sleep, we do whatever we need to do to kind of recover before we have to go back out into the world. And I'm not saying all that's wrong or bad. But I just want us to provoke us to consider this. As followers of Jesus, is the way we think about our home different from the way most of our non-Christian friends think about their home? Do we think about our home in a different way, a fundamentally different way because of who we are in Christ? What if we could see our homes as outposts for the kingdom of God in the world, for example? What if we stopped thinking a mission as something that happens out there and started thinking about mission as something that happens inside our own home and through our own home, at our own table? What if our tables were reimagined as places to show the love of God the Father to those who are not yet his sons and daughters? What if that captured our imagination? The reality is there, there are people all around us. There are people all around where you live who are desperately in need. And I know they look great on the outside, but imagine you could put on some spiritual x-ray vision, right? And you could see into the homes and the lives of your neighbors and your friends. You could see what's going on behind the great jobs and the great house and the great clothes and the great car and the amazing labradoodles and all that. You could just see past all that, right? And you could see inside their hearts. And you could see the loneliness. You could see the pain. You could see the things that they're really struggling with, the anxiety the fear, all, all the destructive things they're doing to try just to cope with that on their own. If you could see that. You see, with where we are as a culture, we've talked about this, with the, with the breakdown of the family, you know, the, the, the transient nature of life these days, the, the faux kind of community that comes with, with connectivity, all that has led to this place where so many people around us, they have no meaningful, in-depth relationships, no place that's safe, no place to call family. You know, Psalm 68.6 makes this incredible promise. You know what it says? It says, God sets the solitary in families. God sets the solitary in families. Isn't that beautiful? That's what our God does. That's his heart, is to take those who feel alone and cut off and place them in community, in his community around Christ. 
And some of you have found that. You found that here in this church. You found a place. You call this your family. And some of you here are looking for that. You're longing for that. And you haven't yet found it. And I just want to say this morning, you are welcome. God is at work here to create that. And through that, people are experiencing healing and wholeness and life. So it's an invitation into that space of God's family. That's what hospitality is at its heart. And Jesus is inviting us into that. And he invites us to be a part of that work around us with our neighbors. As followers of Jesus, we are to be a place for people who have no family, who are longing for that. In particular, the lonely. In particular, the hurting, the orphan, the widow, the single. We are to be a family. A beautiful picture of what God does through community. To live as God's family. And to do that, we have to take up this practice of loving our neighbor. They go together. It's part of the same. The brilliant Christian thinker and pastor, um, Francis Schaeffer, who was deeply committed to the practice of Jesus, uh, of hospitality, he said this about hospitality. He said, don't start it with a big program. He said, don't start by thinking you can add uh, something to your line item in your budget and get started that way with hospitality. He said, start personally and start at home. He said, I dare you. I dare you in the name of Jesus Christ, do what I suggest. Begin by opening up your home to community. I love that. I dare you. I dare you in the name of Jesus Christ to do it. I'm going to start using that a lot. (laughs) I dare y'all in the name of Jesus Christ. What if we took up that dare? What if we as a church took up this dare to love our neighbor as ourself? The dare of Jesus Christ. This morning, that's what I, I want us to spend a little bit of time just dreaming and imagining and taking up that dare together, okay? The rest of our time, I want us to just let our imaginations kind of get engaged with this invitation from Jesus to take up this way, this practice of radical, ordinary hospitality. And so to get us kind of moving in that direction, I want to give you two exercises to do this week. So here's two things that I want all of us to do. We're going to do this in life group. So if you're in a life group, you will preview here. Uh, but even if you're not, this is something you can do on your own with some friends as a family. You can do these two exercises. So the first exercise is to create a block map. So something like this. This is what I'm talking about when I say a block map. And this, now listen, this is just for you, okay? Don't post this on your social media when you fill this out or something like that. This is for you and the Lord and kind of your family or your friends just to help you think about how to be intentional with this practice of being, um, uh, you know, of, of radical ordinary hospitality. And this is the way it works. So you're in the middle. That's you, that little house right there in the middle. This is your block, This is where you live, or this is your apartment building, and this is where the people live uh, around you, these other eight blocks. And what you do is you just fill this out. And what you fill it out is A is their name. So just write your neighbor's name in uh, line A. If you know first and last name, if you don't know, put question mark. Say, I don't know. Or the guy who drives the white Prius. I don't know. Whoever that is, you can identify him. Put him right there. Line B You fill in whatever kind of unique facts you know about that person, 
right? They, uh, they moved here from uh, New York. They love to play tennis, something really unique. They work in oil and gas, you know, something like that. You know, just put it on that line B. And then line C is kind of the next level. It's just, okay, I, I've learned a few things maybe about this person um, that is kind of more in the friend zone, you know. It's not so superficial. It's kind of their hopes, their dreams, things that are going on in their life, things that are going on in their family. You just kind of jot those down. And, and the aim of this, this may feel a little bit weird, but again, this is just to help you. This is a tool to help you be intentional and think about where God has placed you because there are people all around you that he's calling you to love, your neighbors that he's calling you to love. The authors of Art of Neighboring, which is where this little graphic comes from, um, they've surveyed thousands of people uh, using this tool. Here's what's fascinating. Only about 10% can fill out all eight blocks for line A. One out of every 10 people. How, how can you do? How'd you do? I couldn't do it. I couldn't fill out all eight blocks for line A, just the name. All right. Line B, the percentage drops to 3%. Only about 3% can tell anything kind of significant on a super left. And then less than 1% have any meaningful knowledge about their neighbors, the kind of knowledge that would come from an actual relationship with them. The point is not to make you feel guilty. We're all terrible neighbors. That's not the point. The point is for us to engage our imaginations with the fact that God has called us and put us right where we are. I mean, look at the opportunity all around you to live into this call to love your neighbor. So that's the first exercise. So if you want to snap a picture of that before it disappears, snap a picture of it. I want you to take it home um, and, uh, and work through this. We're going to work through this as life groups. Um, but go through this exercise. It's really helpful. Um, Langley and I have done this. It's a really good tool. Second exercise is this, to brainstorm on ways to love your neighbors. That's the second exercise. Brainstorm on ways to love your neighbors. Now, we did this as a staff. Uh, earlier this week. We just kind of tried to throw out a bunch of ideas and some really great ideas came out. So just to help you kind of get going on this, uh, I threw up some of the ones that we came up with. Now, here's a great place to start. Meet your neighbors, right? If you've never met them, you don't know their name, it's not too late. I know that awkward zone where, man, we've been neighbors for five years and I don't even know your name. It's, you know, just push through that. Meet them. Take that first step. Make your yard or house a hangout. Uh, somebody said, you know, we just tried to, to create this place where in our backyard the, the gate's always open, kids are always playing, after school people just come over and they just hang out. It's the hangout place in the neighborhood and they've kind of cultivated that. Organize a block party. Um, you could uh, have a barbecue with your neighbors, have neighbors over for dinner. So identify the ones on that, that, that page you just filled out, invite them over for dinner. Uh, go beyond small talk. Somebody said this, I thought it was great. Uh, stop having the same conversation with your neighbor over and over and over again. We've all been there, right? Hey, how you doing? It's good to see you. Yeah, how about those Astros? Okay, see you in a week at the end of the driveway. You know, we've had those conversations. What if we were intentional about taking a next step? Uh, somebody else said it this way. What if we thought of kind of best friend type questions that we could begin to think about and look for opportunities to ask that would really begin to cultivate some real relationship? Um, other things, write down the things you learn. Just keep it in your journal. Just name, learn this about them, and you use that to pray for them. Uh, go on a prayer walk through your neighborhood. 
Uh, evaluate your budget and schedule with hospitality in mind. Are there changes I can make so that I would be more free to actually love my neighbor? Create a Christ room. This is actually an ancient practice. Basically, you would call this a guest room, but it's with intent. I have a guest room in my house where when there are people in need, people traveling into town, I make sure I put that room forth where they can stay and I care for those people. Um, invite to watch the game at your house, host a book club, take food to neighbors. You guys can think of tons of other ideas. Um, there are creative people in this room that can come up with ideas about how to love your neighbor. And here's what we're after, okay, with this. What we are after is not just more events on your calendar, Right? We are after a way of life, a way of life marked by this practice of hospitality, a practice that flows out of your heart that comes from the heart of God to others. Living out a way of gratitude because of God's generous welcome for us in Jesus. That is what we're after because we've received so much in Jesus. We have so much to give, more than we think we do. We have so much to give. And so the biggest thing, I can feel it right now. I can see it in your faces. That's beautiful, David. That's amazing. I love that idea. I have no time for that. <laughs> I have no time. I'm way too busy, right? I feel that. I feel that too. The biggest thing this is going to cost you is time. There's just no way around it. I mean, it's going to cost you some money, but you can do a lot of that stuff on the cheap for no dollars, right? Anybody can do that. But it is going to cost you time. That is the big challenge. And I know it's really, really hard. And the reality is that we are busy people. I'm busy. You're busy. We are all busy people. And there are, let me just say this before I say anything else. There are times in our lives, there are seasons for hospitality, and then there are seasons for rest and recovery. I want to acknowledge that on the front end. However, that being said, there's some truth that I think all of us need to hear, myself included, okay? Some of us are busy with trivial things. Some of us are busy with things ultimately that are not important. The average American watches Five hours of TV a night. Okay. <laughs> and maybe that's not you, but just goes to show. 24 hours, five of them given to just watching TV because we're so exhausted and we got nothing left to give. And we just binge watch night after night after night. Three, two to three hours on our phone a day, average, right? I'm just saying there's more time than we think we have. And the way we use our time, if nothing else comes out of this series, what if what came out of this series was I took a long, hard look at my priorities? Because here's the truth. If you want to know what you value, you want to know what's important in your life, what's important in my life, look at how I spend my time and my money. How are you spending your time and your money? That will tell you a lot about what you value. Now, I am a parent of small kids who are aging into the, um, the age of kind of middle school and high school and just activity, 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 activity after school. I just want to say that up front, too. But I want to say a special word to parents here because this isn't particularly difficult if you have kids, I think. 
but it doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be. The truth is that a lot of us are caught up in a cultural value system that values athletics and academics over spiritual development. And we as parents cannot buy into that reality. As parents, we have to live in a way that reinforces who our kids are and who we are as a family and what we value. And I'm just going to tell you, sporadic attendance on Sundays and a personal faith for your children is not enough. It's just not enough. It's going to take way more than that. And I think this practice of hospitality is a way for us as families with kids to actually shape our children in the way of Jesus, to demonstrate in tangible ways what it looks like to actually live out the gospel, to actually love each other as a family and to love our neighbors in ways that will profoundly shape our children. And so I just wanna encourage you, our kids, they need to see the love of Jesus expressed in tangible ways and they need to see it from us as parents and the way we use our time and the way we use our money. It's not going to be easy, it is hard We are busy. We are pulled in every direction. We are exhausted. But as someone once told me, if nothing ever changes, nothing will ever change. Right? If nothing ever changes, nothing will ever change. So we need God to help us think through what changes do we need to make to create space for this. This is not a call to feel guilty (laughs) about your schedule It's not even a call. It may sound like it, but it is not a call to do more and more and more things with your time. It's actually an invitation to unhurry and unclutter your life. It's an invitation to be fully present where you are, where God has placed you, to create space for radical, ordinary hospitality. This is an invitation to love God and love your neighbor with all that you are because in that place, Jesus says, you will experience the fullness, life to the full in him. It's an invitation to you and to me. Let's pray. Lord, help us. Help us this morning to know that you are the God who loves us and invites us into life with you. Lord, we are a people who have received so much in Jesus and the world wants to convince us that we have so little and that we have to do more and more to get more and more and we have everything in you, Jesus. Lord, I pray in that there would be a great freedom a release for us this morning from the anxiety and the weight and the stress and just the feeling of overwhelmed that we carry with us. Lord, that we would be able to love you with all that we are and in that place, Lord, because we have received so much from you, we're free to love our neighbor or we're free to love our neighbor 
Lord, teach us what it means to love you with our whole heart and to love our neighbor as ourself. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.